welcome to the History and Philosophy of Physics podcast. I'm Tegan Phillips, and this is episode 4, All That Matters, part 2. This episode will follow very closely on the last episode, which I'm sure is unsurprising given the title. Last time I talked about Thales, the first philosopher in the Greek tradition, which is important because that is the tradition which would go on to have the most profound influence on what scholars today commonly call the Western world. This is not to say that the Greek tradition was the only influence. It most certainly was not, and Greece wasn't the only place to develop a philosophical or scientific practice. I'll talk about other nations later on as they start to influence what we regard today as the field of physics. But I want to continue to focus on the Greek philosophy for now, because it is commonly regarded as the seed from which physics would grow, at least within the North American and European tradition which I have been trained in. Today, I'd like to discuss the man regarded as the second philosopher in the Greek tradition, Anaximander of Miletus, along with the third philosopher, Anaximenes. Anaximander is sometimes thought to have been a pupil of Thales, though they lived at the same time, and it's more likely that they were equals or friends. Some people just like to trace teacher-student relationships through the history of philosophy. This works fine in some cases, like Aristotle and Plato, but sometimes, especially before there even were schools of philosophy, it's far more likely that the relationships between philosophers were that of comrades exchanging knowledge and ideas with more or less equal authority and influence. In that case, you may be wondering what evidence there is that Anaximander developed philosophical leanings after Thales did. We obviously don't have any published works, or much solid material to date their thinking, but we know that Thales was about 14 years older than Anaximander, and our ancient sources describe Thales as the first proper philosopher, so Anaximander was probably just a little late to the party. Anaximander of Miletus was born around the year 610 BCE. He was likely a prominent citizen and was involved in some of the political affairs of Miletus and its colonies along the Black Sea. Anaximander reached his philosophical prime, if we can call it that, in the mid-6th century BCE, when he was probably in his 50s and less than 40 years after Thales is said to have begun this newfangled philosophy stuff. Anaximander followed some similar trains of thought as Thales and other philosophers of the Ionian school, and is one of the first known Greeks to have published writings on the subject of nature. Some fragments of his writings have survived the millennia, so we are in a slightly better position to reconstruct some of his theories than those of other pre-Socratic philosophers like Thales. Anaximander also searched for a universal principle, as important to nature as Thales probably thought water was, but we can see in Anaximander more of the influence of the Greek mythical tradition. He still used rational thought to guide his theory, so it is properly philosophical, and not just a kind of creation story. How did Anaximander explain creation, you ask? Well, he believed the origin of the universe was an abstract entity he called a pyron, which can be translated a few different ways, but means something along the lines of without limit, boundless, or indeterminate. It's understood to mean something boundless both temporally and spatially, so it literally extends through everything and all time, 
and is also not determined in a way that distinguishes it from all the determinate things we see around us, such as physical matter. The reason why I said Anaximander was more clearly influenced by mythology is because ancient Greek myth had the idea of a chaos, a kind of emptiness of the universe, which was the origin of the cosmos. In the case of the myth, from this disorder or emptiness was made the cosmos through a divine creator, who created the ordered universe we are now a part of. Zeus's rule replaced chaos, but the Apiron was by definition not replaceable. One element of Anaximander's thought is this idea that the origin of all finite things was the infinite, an idea that will reoccur in a slightly different form later on in philosophy, most notably with René Descartes. There were reasons other than the influence of mythology which likely drove Anaximander's choice of Apiron as the originating substance of nature, instead of any of the primary elements like water. In an argument preserved by Aristotle, water cannot be the one originating principle because it is one of warring opposites. You can find in nature the state of dryness or absence of water, while water itself can only ever be wet. If water were infinite, and in everything, then at some point it would have eliminated all dryness from the universe. If we still have dryness, as we do, then water or moisture is evidently not an infinite substance. You can make a similar case against the other primary elements of fire, earth, and air. A pyron, on the other hand, is more primitive than the other elements, and doesn't have a natural opposite. We can't directly perceive the apiron, but it is everywhere, being boundless, and it is that from which the elements both arise from and pass away into, a bit like clouds forming from and disappearing into the sky. Anaximander extends this origin to the earth and terrestrial beings as well. These are supposedly formed through interactions that occur between the elements after they develop from the apiron. These interactions aren't clearly explained, at least not by any fragments or commentaries which have survived to today, but they are generally thought to be a kind of primal chaos. This may have been what Anaximander himself believed, or this could be an assumption made because of the existence of this idea of chaos in ancient Greek mythology. Unfortunately, we don't know for sure, but it's reasonable to think that there was a kind of chaos of elements whirling around randomly, combining and splitting, dancing around until they gradually formed the universe. Anaximander's account of creation gets a bit more specific when it comes to the moment of creation of the universe, and he actually develops a model of the universe, as well as describing its birth. Anaximander is the first person known to have come up with a model of the universe arising from its birth, so he's sometimes called the father of cosmology, cosmology being the branch of astronomy focused on the study of the birth and evolution of the universe or cosmos. The birth of the universe apparently occurred via the separation of a nucleus in the primordial matter into hot and cold. From the splitting of this nucleus into these opposing forces, the universe arose. After the separation of hot and cold, the earth was formed, but it first had a layer of fiery atmosphere surrounding it, like bark on a tree. Due to the air pressure, this layer broke off from the earth, and spread out some distance away from it. 
It divided into a series of circles, which were enclosed within rings of mist, and filled with this celestial fire. The celestial bodies that we see when we look up to the heavens, the stars, moon, and sun, correspond to holes in these circles, which reveal the inner fire, like looking through the mouthpiece of a bellows, according to a fragment of Anaximander's writings. A rather clever idea, it provided an explanation for a lot of observational phenomena, such as eclipses. In Anaximander's model, the Earth is a cylindrical drum that is wider than it is tall. To be precise, the base diameter is three times its height. The cylindrical Earth is resting in the center of the infinite, which means that it is equally distant from all other things in the cosmos, and is not being pushed by these things in one direction more than another. This geocentric universe is the start of a series of models that will culminate about 650 years after Anaximander with the Greek astronomer Ptolemy, whose geocentric universe model would be a part of astronomy for the next 1400 years. It's a natural approach for a number of reasons, including this desire for symmetry in order to balance forces. This is long before the idea of gravity, but there was a concept of force, and of elements or matter being able to push or pull stuff, even at a cosmic level. Anaximander's model is clearly a bit asymmetric, though. He chose to have a cylindrical Earth, when a spherical one would provide a more symmetric model, and a spherical Earth would soon be verified based on observations. Greek astronomers noticed that the shadow made by the Earth on the Moon during an eclipse always took the form of a circle, regardless of the angle at which this was observed. The only shape that could possibly do this is a sphere, so the Earth must be spherical. However, Anaximander, an honorary member of the Flat Earth Society, believed that the flat top of the cylindrical Earth was the inhabited world, and that the land was surrounded by ocean. So he would have urged you to be careful when you go out sailing, because if you go too far, you may fall off the edge of the Earth. The Earth in Anaximander's model is not supported by anything, but it doesn't need to be because of the balanced forces surrounding it in the infinite. You may remember from the last episode on Thales that his model had the Earth being supported by water. However, this leads to the question of what supports the water. Thales didn't have an answer to this question, at least not one we know of. Anaximander's theory was a natural development in response to this question. Some people see this idea of an unsupported Earth held in place by a balance of forces as the first cosmological revolution and the start of abstract scientific thinking. So that's pretty cool. Set at certain distances away from this unsupported Earth, were the celestial wheels filled with fire. Now we can see why it was mechanically important for the Earth to be unsupported, so the celestial rings can freely pass underneath the Earth as they rotate. It's been noted that these rings bear a resemblance to astronomical sequences that were present in an Iranian religious tradition, which corresponded to different levels between heaven and Earth. However, the rings in Anaximander's model don't appear to have any specific mystical significance, and the different distances provided a practical explanation of some observable celestial phenomena. 
In particular, as I mentioned earlier, this theory explained eclipses, which would have seemed mystical, if not impossible, were the sun and moon and other celestial bodies all in the same plane like a painted sky. According to Anaximander's model, eclipses occur when a hole passes behind and is blocked by a celestial wheel closer to the Earth. The sun corresponds to the farthest wheel, the moon is the next farthest, and the stars and planets are holes in a much taller wheel closest to the Earth. I'll include an image of this model in this episode's post on the website, if you want to take a look. There was considerable thought put into this model. Anaximander even accounted for other observable lunar phenomena by making some adjustments specific to the lunar ring. The fire in this ring is less intense than that of the solar ring, which is why we can look at the moon without burning holes in our retinas, even though it's closer to us than the sun is. The hole in the lunar ring also changes shape in a way that corresponds to the phases of the moon. In this way, Anaximander was able to explain all the most obvious celestial phenomena. Anaximander provided natural explanations for some earthly phenomena as well. Thunder and lightning, according to him, were not the results of angry or battling gods, but were natural occurrences arising from the interactions of elements in the near vicinity of the earth. I hesitate to say atmosphere because it's not clear to me if Anaximander believed there was a definite atmosphere that remained surrounding the earth after the fiery atmosphere broke off and formed the celestial rings. Also, the sea was a remnant of humidity that once surrounded the earth, and rain was the product of humidity being pumped up to the earth by the sun as it passed underneath. All of this material matter was set within the infinite, or apyron. The apyron governs the universe and ensures that any specific part or element only has a temporary predominance. All will return naturally to a balance. One of the fragments we have of Anaximander's writings can actually be read as the first statement of a cosmic law based on a principle of dynamic balance. This fragment comes to us as a quote made by Simplicitus. Whence things have their origin, thence also their destruction happens, according to necessity. For they give to each other justice and recompense for their injustice, in conformity with the ordering of time. In this fragment, we see the concept of a pyron, what things both originate from and recede into when destroyed and of a necessary balance that things return to throughout time. This dynamic balance can be seen in naturally occurring cycles, like the changing of the seasons, the day turning into night and then day again, and the water cycle. As with Thales, we see in Anaximander's theories a replacement of mythology and divinity with philosophy. This was not a total rejection of religion, but a restructuring of certain aspects of the worldview. Anaximander de-anthropomorphized nature, and as part of his theory, supposed humans originated without divine creators. Rather, we are a natural development of the physical interactions among elements and matter, like the earth and other natural things. The Epiron does have some divine attributes. It is ageless, immortal, and indestructible according to some other fragments of Anaximander's writings. 
After Thales, it is thought that nature itself inspires a reverence traditionally reserved for the gods. Nature wasn't worshipped like the gods were, but it inspired a kind of awe that I'm sure you can still find among scientists today. There are some other interesting theories we get from Anaximander. He thought that the earth was slowly drying up, and that one day even the deepest regions would lack water. This is quite clearly opposed to Thales's theory of moisture being the core principle of all matter. It's also thought that Anaximander believed in the existence of multiple worlds. This is because the philosopher Theophrastus, when writing about Anaximander's theory, described the Epiron as that from which arise all the heavens and the worlds within them. Multiple worlds, or the multiverse, is an idea that seems to be gaining popularity in recent times in pop culture, but also among theoretical physicists and some philosophers. Nothing's been proved in the two and a half thousand years since Anaximander may have argued in favor of multiple worlds, but it's remained an intriguing idea and is part of some modern physical and astronomical theories. Anaximander died around the age of 64, just after the second year of the 58th Olympiad, circa 546 BCE. He actually died within a year or two of Thales of Miletus. Unlike Thales, there are no somewhat ironic stories about how Anaximander died, or any stories at all, so I can't offer you any witty or punny comments on his passing. The concept of apiron reappeared in physics in the 20th century. Werner Heisenberg had the idea that elementary particles can be considered to be different quantum states of one primordial substance, that they all share some origin, but take different forms. Max Born noted that this idea was kind of similar to that of Anaximander, and suggested that Heisenberg's substance be also named a pyron. For the last couple minutes of this episode, I'd like to talk briefly about Anaximenes of Miletus. Anaximenes was born around the year 586 BCE. He was about 25 years younger than Anaximander, and he rounded out the Milesian school by being the third philosopher of the Greek tradition. Unfortunately, none of his work has been preserved, and we really don't know much about him. We do know that he was either a friend or student of Anaximander, and that his philosophical theories followed along similar lines to those of Thales and Anaximander. Anaximenes believed that air was the primary substance of matter. Air held the universe together and had some divine characteristics, such as being infinite. He is thought to have based his theory around the observable phenomena of rarefaction, the reduction of density, and condensation, the conversion of vapor or air into a liquid like water. Anaximenes is the first person we know of to have associated qualitative or measurable changes in temperature and moisture with the density of a single material. According to his theory, condensation was the result of cold and wet air whereas rarefaction was the result of hot and dry air. Anaximenes' theory was also the first to fundamentally utilize the idea that a substance is capable of changing forms, rather than just being present in greater or lesser amounts, alongside other substances in a thing. This concept of a substance changing forms is considered fundamental to much of science and scientific thought. 
Anaximenes died around the year 526 BCE, when he was about 60. Anaximenes is also known for being the first to use the word pneuma as a synonym for air. Pneuma is one of the roots of a lot of our air-related words in English, like pneumatic or pneumonia. It commonly referred to breath or soul when traditionally used in a religious context. Also, as a fun fact, there's a crater on the moon named after Anaximenes. The three philosophers that have occupied the two parts of this episode have a number of things in common which we can consider to demonstrate the origin of philosophical thought and some fundamentals of scientific thought. They provided explanations of natural phenomena, matter, and cosmology that were based on natural elements and processes, rather than mythology or divine beings. They were also seeking a deeper understanding of the nature of matter, one of the goals of the field of physics. The knowledge and practices of different cultures likely influenced the creation of philosophy, particularly the sophisticated mathematics and astronomy of the Egyptians and Babylonians. But as we will see, the Greeks really took it from there and made philosophy their own. While these men can't quite be considered scientists, we can certainly see in their philosophy some of the origins of physics and other scientific fields. In the next episode, I'll discuss one of Anaximander's most famous pupils, a certain guy by the name of Pythagoras. Before that, I want to remind you that you can check out the website for the podcast at historyandphilosophyofphysicspodcast.ca, follow the podcast on Facebook and Twitter, just search at histphilphyspod, or send me an email at histphilphyspod at gmail.com. Until next time, take care and stay safe.